Hello, I'm Brett Bradigan, editor and publisher of Ojai Quarterly, with this week's episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We check in with an old friend, Andy Gilman, one of the founders and the executive director of the Agora Foundation. The Agora Foundation hosts events going deep into the great literature and thinking of the human experience. Andy also helped start the Ojai Chautauqua, which brings in experts in their field to debate topics of national and local interest. Hello, Andy. Hello, Brett. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks. So, um, yeah, I've been meaning to have you on for a while, uh, especially since you seem to have figured out how to uh, keep doing what you're doing in a pandemic. And uh, that's impressive. And I, I just wonder how that works. How, what was your thinking process? No, thanks for asking. Um, I, and I have to say part of it was we were forced into a situation that we did not realize was a, a market of interest. So I had taken a, a two-week break in March to travel. So we didn't have any events during that time with Agora. And then when we kind of saw what was happening, we decided to take uh, the scheduled March event, uh, not have it be on site, that all of our events had been on site at that moment. And we decided to try a, a Zoom meeting for the first time. And it turned out that there were people all over the country that maybe had lived here or knew about our great book seminars or panels, but couldn't attend anymore. Then suddenly it opened this wide door to people all over the country and some in different countries to attend our, our events. And so we realized this was just something we should have been doing the whole time, <laughs> maybe not exclusively, but in addition to our on-site events. So at yeah. that, yeah, at the same time, um, we had a subscription model for people who were attending sort of frequently and we decided let's have an online version of our subscription model and we're we're going to be approaching uh 80 subscribers so far that just started the online subscription but we have people attending off here and there but um we also quadrupled the amount of programming that we're doing and they're shorter so it used to be one day events uh two two-hour sessions with lunch in the middle and now they're just one or two hour uh, online seminars, but we do about four a week now. Have you changed the content? The readings have they changed? You doing because of the just two hour time span? How, how does that? How does their your selection work? Yeah, well, we we it, it has changed a little bit. Some is exactly the same, but what we're doing now are um, series, and so a series might be a longer book, like like Proust or. Thucydides Peloponnesian War, where you you might have done that over, let's say, three solid uh, days, but now we just break it up into digestible chunks, like a like a chapter, for example. And so then people join with they don't have to commit to the series; they can come or go as as needed. But we'll split like Thucydides is eight books, and so it's split over eight sessions, um, one month apart. And all of them, all of the seminars are audio recorded and they're on the website, on the media page. So anybody, when we get a new uh, person joining any of the series, I point them to that to say, feel free to listen to these to catch up or, or not. That's up to you. And uh, discussions. Uh, I know uh, 
I've had some difficulties, uh, you know, just silly things. Like I, I think I mentioned before, like when people sing happy birthday, you could, it's just, it's comical. <laughs> right. Are you having any issues with uh, different people's different signals and yep. getting in and breaking up and guiding them through the technology in the first place? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And basically all educators are trying to do this, of course. Um, so initially what happened was, uh, I would get on the call, on the Zoom call, half an hour prior to the event, and I would say that in my reminder emails to all the attendees, and I would say, let me help you with any technical issues that you might be having. And people would join, you know, something like half an hour before or 20 minutes before. And now what's happening is people are signing on, you know, one minute before or even five minutes after. So everybody's getting really comfortable with the technology now. And some people had to buy new laptops and that kind of stuff to, to be able to do that. So I, we had a few attendees like that. But what's, what's really fascinating is the ideal number for us for an on-site event was 16 for a seminar. Now, that, as you know, that's different than the Chautauqua panels, which can have, you know, 250 in the audience or whatever. But, um, sure. but 16 it seems to be sort of too many people for the Zoom call. Uh, I'm finding 10 to 12 yields the best conversations. And so we've had it as many as 22 people and they're just, not everybody can speak the way that they would like to. And and so I think we're going to start capping it at and yeah. challenge or tutor or. And yeah, exactly that, exactly that. So I want people to speak sort of as much as they would like to. So to answer your question and, and to, to fill it out and, and end it. Um, what I have done is I've said, you know, feel free to literally raise your hand if you're trying to come in and having a hard time, somebody maybe who's less extroverted or something like that, feel free to use the raised hand function. Um, but we're trying to have the conversation be as organic as possible. I am coaching people on the side. So if oh, someone is, no, or I'll, I'll email them or call them separately. Um, so I'll, I'll say, you know, hey, what you're saying is great. I, I'm, I want to encourage you to be more succinct, or maybe don't, don't speak as much as you feel you want to. Cut it sort of in half. So that they've been very open to that coach. I mean, I've tried to do it obviously kindly and respectfully, um, and they, I, I've gotten very positive response uh, for for those that I've tried to coach. So, oh, that's great. Oh. in the exchange the dynamic of it changed from in person to virtual i would say that, that what is what are some of the differences that you've picked up on really it, it's it's kind of related to the question that you just asked um the conversations are actually i would say that they're slightly better and the reason for that is we're we are using tutors from across the country now so we're getting some of the best people that i used to have to fly out and and put up and all that so now we can just i could pay them for a two-hour zoom meeting and it's working great but yeah the quality of the conversation is very high but it again it's the um i would call it like traffic control just making sure because i'm the one who might call up people but i see a couple of people are trying to come in at the same time so it's it's navigating the zoom call when in person you would have picked up on the body language that somebody wants to talk and they would have just jumped in so it's it's taking a little bit more finessing from the the leaders the facilitators yeah and are they having a good experience yes yeah, very What's the feedback you're getting from your tutors oh excellent 
just they're, they're thrilled to do it um and so they're they're really signing on for as much as we want them to do it and and especially the series so i'll co-create series with them or ask them what what are you really interested in reading right now and they'll throw out a few things and 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 we'll pick it up so also academics uh, are not typically highly paid so extra income is, is appreciated on their parts yeah yeah especially now yeah especially now no everybody that i'm working with they're they're teaching um at their colleges so that's that's all fine but um yeah they owe, everybody appreciates a little extra money so yeah great so what uh um now this is associated now you came up through the great books program and can you tell us about that because i know a little i know that there's a couple universities that teach that including um, Thomas right. Aquinas right over the hill here. Yeah, well, it started actually, I mean, I've always tried to be a curious person, but it really started when I was in art school uh, for my undergraduate education. And um, I noticed that there were there were thinkers, people that we would read about in our art classes that referenced um, a whole history of Western culture that I didn't know about. I, I, knew, I knew the names, like Socrates or Aristotle or whatever, but I didn't know much about them or what they had to say. And um, <clears throat> it really hit me one day uh, at Soul Park. Uh, I was walking along Soul Park, probably just hanging out with the kids or whatever. And um, I noticed if you look across the creek and you see the golf course, you can see the golf course, you know, has all this grass growing and then there's trees growing also in the golf course. But if you look at that creek and the bank of the creek, uh, that separates the golf course from the park. There was all these roots of these trees that I could see on the bank. And that it hit me one day that, well, underneath all this grass, there's all these roots. There's this whole foundation, but we don't see it. And so another, somebody else said it a different way. They said, our culture hands us something, but it veils all the work that went into it. And an example. Oh, great. Yeah, metaphor. it really is. So like the periodic table, you see the periodic table of elements and you say, it just makes perfect sense. It's organized. It, it, it's just so tidy. But what you don't realize is all the literal blood, sweat, tears, and lives that went into filling out this table. <laughs> so I decided I really want to I want to try to understand as much as I can about kind of where, how we got to where we are. And that's really sparked it for the, me. The building block. Exactly. Yeah. But then I realized it's not just sort of a history lesson. It, uh, to me, it's it's actually quite foundational to say, let's say you're talking about um, the foundations of our republic, to, to deeply work through all of those documents up to the current time. You can at least see in what ways might we have deviated from the founding fathers' visions and stuff like that. And, um, and in, in what ways have we also gotten better so for example if you say all men are created equal in the declaration how how have we how have we striven to make that really be true and and maybe how have we fallen short still you know those kinds of things but so it yeah. it really informs well, I, that's interesting I, yeah i had a conversation with robert egan I'm, i don't remember exactly where i read it but when abraham lincoln gave the gettysburg address mm -hmm. and he said four score and seven years ago yep. He was referencing 1776, <laughs> and specifically the All um, Men Are Created Equal. But as customary at the time to date the founding of the Republic to 1787, the <laughs> Constitutional Convention, or 1789 when they ratified. when they got ratified. <laughs> so he was 
that was very controversial for him to say all men are created equal because uh, people thinking was really changing at that time. It was fascinating to, to make those connections when you get mm-hmm. into the literature and realize that, wow, these people were stumbling around in the dark trying to figure it out just like just like we are. Absolutely. And he'll even, Lincoln will say in the, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, he he's trying to, the big issue at hand in the debate is whether or not Missouri should be allowed to be a, a new slave state or not. And yeah. what Lincoln does is he, he makes many arguments, both from the Declaration and the Constitution. And he'll say, if we were to write this expression today, all men are created equal, he, th- we would mean blacks is what he says. And secondly, I mean, we would explicitly say that's what it means. But then the second thing would be um, they used all this covert language in the Constitution, like three-fifths of a person. Uh, they never say Blacks, and they never say slaves. And so he he makes the case that they wanted it to end eventually, and they designed yes. it to end eventually. And so to allow it to grow into new territories, it would be contrary. So that's his case, which I think is fascinating, but it takes a little work to get through it, you know? So It does. Yeah, yeah he was great in the scholarship. But Absolutely. The, also, the uh, three-fifths thing and yeah. all that, uh, we're still dealing with those issues. And we are. You can see the people out on the streets. We have a, still a long ways to go to live up to our promise. Absolutely. But, but Lincoln fascinates me as he fascinates a lot of people because his thinking changed over the course of his life. He it was did. always like anti-slavery. Uh, what was it, 1850, the Missouri, the Missouri Compromise? No, it was 1850. But slave power was, because of that three-fifths requirement, they got uh, disproportionate. Right, and they really were steering uh, ship of state from at least uh, Andrew Jackson onward, and for uh, you know the dis- dissolution of the Whig Party and the, <laughs> and the Union Party and, uh, and the Republicans coming out in 1854, and yep. uh, you know John C. Fremont being their standard there 1856. That was a turbulent time, Absolutely. very turbulent. I think about today, we say, oh, we're so bitter and divided. I say, not compared to, you know, we've been through this before to an even greater degree. Uh-huh. And it's really, uh, you know, if you look if you look back at the what what we've been through. Oh, yeah. It gives you a good foundation for what we're dealing with now. So that's that just to get back to Agora that. Um, so one series that we do that's free that was taking place at the. Ojai Library, but now it's online, is the foundations of our republic. So we start with the Declaration of Independence, then go through the Articles of Confederation, then the Federalist Papers, and right now we're in the Constitution, but we'll go through Supreme Court cases, Lincoln-Douglas, um, we'll do, basically we'll, we'll wind up with um, Martin Luther King and the UN Declaration of Human Rights, and probably we'll look at the Civil Rights Amendment, I mean the um, Equal Rights Amendment, that's you know possibly will be tried, yeah. um, but really it takes about a year and a half. We meet every other week, uh, and I, to me, this is the second time now that we've done this series, and I keep, really? I, yeah, awesome. I learned, I learned a lot. Um, it's just a lot of fun to do. Yeah. Now, how did this uh, thing came up? When I first met you, you working at 
BST, Behavioral Sciences Technologies. That's right. Did you have some conception of this? this is, we're going back almost 20 years. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> what ended up happening was, uh, so Tom Krause, uh, who owned BST, and he he had some interest in, in the great books. And so he partnered with uh, Mike McLean, who is now the president of Thomas Aquinas College, but was a, just a professor. They're called tutors at the college. And Paul O'Reilly, who's now the vice president, he was a, a tutor at the time as well. They, in 1998, they got together and said, um, it'd be fun just to have seminars maybe every six weeks or so. And then they asked me to run it for them. But at that time, uh, I wanted to go to graduate school, but I couldn't decide what I wanted to do because of this curiosity that was really growing. And uh, it was Tom. He said, oh, have you heard of St. John's College? And I said, no, I haven't heard of it. And it turned out it's exactly what I was looking for, this great books program and and getting a graduate degree. In, and they only offer really the one degree, liberal arts. That's all the degree anybody gets, just like at Thomas Aquinas College. So that's that started in 1998. And I was managing it on the side. Um, I was designing and, and doing the marketing for BST, but just this side project. And we realized all these teachers were coming to many events and they approached us saying it would be wonderful if you guys could become an, a nonprofit um, so we can maybe get some grant funding so you can come teach us at and our schools. Continuing education credit. Exactly. Uh, teaching so, the teachers. That's, and that started in 2006. So that's when we, we got our IRS status and incorporated that year. So it's been the Agora Foundation since then. And three years ago, we ended up uh, getting enough funding that we all agreed this should be my full-time work. Um, so for three years, it's been full-time. So your side hustle became your hustle. That's right. That's right. That's <laughs> a great side know that feeling. Yeah, yeah, it's been yeah. good. And the, so the now, Chautauqua panel, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was going to bring up the Chautauqua events. Oh, sure. Okay, so in um, – about 2012, um, I was doing a little side work for the Libby Bowl Foundation, and many of the people who were on the Libby Bowl Foundation's uh, board and who were involved were also very friendly with Agora, and, and so there's a lot of overlap between those things. And the we all kind of came together one day and we said, we're having these great conversations and these seminars where everybody is really, really civil, and even if you're talking about um, – Thomas Aquinas's five proofs for the existence of God. You're not you're not arguing whether there's a God or not. <clears throat> you're saying, "Oh, are Thomas's proofs interesting?" You're sort of holding it like an object, looking at all of its sides, and it's not personal. So the conversation could be great. And then we all we asked ourselves, "Why can't we talk about GMOs like this?" <laughs> so you have a conversation about GMOs, and people get really angry really fast, or vaccinations, those that kind of thing. So then. Uh, it was Esther Wachtel, actually, who came up with the Chautauqua idea from Chautauqua, New York, and the, that whole movement of, you know, bringing a community together and having all kinds of classes and, you know, conversations. Oh, yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm from Chautauqua. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, uh, it, it was like 1877, I think they convened the first one. It was a Methodist uh -huh. minister. And it was basically like a tent revival. Yeah, a tent revival. Which there were many of the time. That's right. Except it was for you know, scholarly pursuits and they'd bring Shakespeare into uh -huh. these 
these mine towns and yeah. uh, places where people didn't have any of that uh, exposure. But yeah, what a great uh, model for yeah. what so you're it, doing. It turned, it turned out it's sort of like the seminar writ large, you might say. And um, so the first one was in 2014 and we've done 17 since then. Uh, when, when the Libby Bowl found, when the city took back uh, the management of the bowl, there was no reason for the Libby Bowl Foundation to it continue to exist. So Agora just adopted the Chautauqua panels from then on. Um, but essentially we were, it was the same people producing it. So nothing really changed. But, the, yeah. but what did change though, was that the, the amount, the, the exposure of our foundation grew dramatically with the Chautauqua. And then, you know, that started pulling more and more people into the seminars. Yeah. Well. Because those, you were getting 150 or mm -hmm. Or more to yeah. those uh, Chautauquas. I've been to, to many, and yeah, uh, good good panelists, good discussion. Everybody is top notch in their field. You got some some really esteemed people in for, yeah. for these events. So how did how do you even get a hold of like I don't remember the the lady from NPR was at Mile um no are you thinking well you might be thinking of Cindy Kennard from Annenberg or um or what, there were some journalists like LA Times and people like that um yeah right. there was a few I recognized yes so yeah. me, that came, voices yeah definitely yeah, in person well what happened was well, well a few things one the first thing in the early days we would get people together like Kit Stoltz, who you know, and we would say, oh, uh, Kit's great. Yeah. yeah. So Kit was, a, you know, a, a contributor for some time and we would sit together on a subject and then go try to find people that we could get that we think would be knowledgeable um, on the topic. So that was limited to who we knew or, or who at least we were associated with in some ways. But then um, we had a panel on income inequality and Kit knew of this guy named Dan Schnur at USC. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. And Dan. Fantastic. Yes. So Dan um, volunteered to be the moderator for this event. And we just thought he was he was fabulous. He, he just really hit a home run. And then we engaged with him uh, to come up with some panels and be the moderator. So he's very connected. <laughs> so that period of time when you, you saw media and politics and, you know, before and after the election, th that whole group of events, uh, Dan actually pulled that together. And, you know, we, we paid him and everything like that. And all of the people who came up um, to Ojai for those panels, none of them were paid, but we put them all up at the Ojai Valley Inn. And so it was a nice little, well, that's a nice little break for them. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, that um, then Dan moved on. So since then, we've kind of, uh, in 2017, right before the fire, you might remember we did a, a panel on tourism in Ojai. So it was our yes. it was our best attended panel and, you know, all local people. And we realized while we, we love talking about, you know, politics and all, you know, national things, we thought, let's go local for a while because we noticed what a huge impact that made and talking about our local water situation. And so that's been the general focus lately. And we have been really primarily thinking about education right now. And so we've done, we've done one online panel so far and that was um, education after COVID. And so you may have seen that, but we had um, the head, the president of Channel Islands University, Tiffany Morse, uh, OUSD superintendent, 
Jody Grass, head of Oak Grove School, and Paul Lazenby, who's the head of Mother of Divine Grace. Um, it's a Catholic homeschooling program based in Ojai, and they have about 5,000 students. Uh, so that was our first online panel, and we're working on the next one now. And, uh, that that's that's awesome. I I feel like the uh, local ones are, you know, it's hard to get. Uh, they're well done, but what really impresses me is your supplemental materials, your packets. Oh, thanks. Because they're like so well researched, and I have them around. I still refer to them for. Oh, good. <laughs> charter. I need information to back up. It's it's great. So they have a they have a long shelf life. Those I, they're on. They're thank you. They're on the website. All the all the events are recorded, and all those packets are available as well. So we still get requests. Uh, so I just point them to the website to the past events. Oh, hi, Chautauqua, and they could download all that material. Um, but those are really fun to put on, and I have to say, the panel. Speaking of that tourism panel. I had no idea how tourism worked in Ojai. <laughs> I mean, I thought I knew, but boy, when I, taught, when I started looking at, oh, the, the transient occupancy tax, how much is it? What percentage of the city's budget is it? And so on. Wow. I realized most people don't know. Um, and we just, every time we do one of these panels, I learn a lot. Um, so it's, it's really fun. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're, it'd be great to do another one because, for one, tourism got hammered. Right, but also we have a lot of new people in Ohio have moved here. Mm-hmm. Not just people buying new homes, people who had second homes that have made this their first home. Yeah, yeah. There's somebody told me that this was a while ago too, like back in August or something. That new residents in the in the city. So whatever that is, seven or eight percent of our population is turned over in a very short period of time. As much yeah. as typical year happened after three months. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. people in town and trying to to reach them and give them the sense of community and welcome them yeah. in. I think that's you know important work. Yeah. We have something very special here in Ohio. I agree. And to uh, preserve that, or at least to make people aware of it, it's important because people, you know, you've seen people come and go. You you grew up here, right? We'll talk about that in a minute. But yep. they don't always get it. They don't always. And they have their, you know, they're isolated. They have their social circles outside, but they do want to feel like they're part of the community. And well, what you do is a part of it, a big part of that. Oh, thanks. Infra- infrastructure. Thanks. I was just going to say that it's very hard right now for if somebody were to move here or move anywhere to build a new community right now is is hard. And people, we've gotten my my wife's mother just moved here, and it's she's not getting the socializing that she would normally get. You know, trying to yeah, like join in a club, difficult. or it is difficult. So um, yes, we're we're kind of struggling right now because there's so much in the news that we're we are thinking about, well, what makes sense to talk about as a panel and what could we, what could we help influence um, to build civil discourse around? And we, we are building a series on title not to be fully determined yet, but both a year long series of seminars, but maybe kicking it off with a panel on the legacy of slavery in United States uh, history, literature, and ideas. So it'd be, you know, deep dive into reading everything from 
pre-declaration stuff to the modern time, but then having a panel to at least kick off how how would we address this question? Um, so that's in the works, but we might do wow, something. That's a, that's a great, great, great subject. Oh, thanks. Highly relevant. I mean, absolutely. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, um, yeah, tell me a little bit, uh, uh, know a little bit about you, but, uh, <laughs> you, uh, you, uh, up and how did you come to Ojai? And, you know, you were a child, right? You, yeah. From where? Like, what's your background? Yeah, sure. Um, both my parents' families are from here. And uh, on my mom's side, it's a very big family. There are 14 kids. And my mom was oh, wow. the second oldest. Um, so she ended up being the mom to the younger ones, for sure. And the youngest is only a year and a half older than me. So all the you have an uncle or aunt who's like basically the same age yeah so the really the young ones are more like siblings um but what happened was um my dad's career was in la so we lived in los angeles when i was born but we we would come to ojai many weekends and then also i would spend my early years summers um at the rec center in their summer program yeah. where my my kids did that too. yeah yeah and my uncles were the rec leaders and stuff like that so that was really cool but um then so they would come down to la a lot we were coming up here a lot and then when i was in third grade in reseda um they were going to start busing students uh, that busing program and so my sister and i were going to be bused into downtown la so we were going to be on a bus an hour and a half each way in the traffic over <laughs> so my parents uh decided to move to ojai and that my dad commuted to la after that you know for like eight more years but we ended up buying a house on fulton street where my grandparents also lived so so then there was two of us on the same street and that so i started fourth grade at topa topa and I, i've been here since then um but yeah so i had many jobs like i worked at gray gables when i was 13 at sea fresh when it was between you know the hitching post and joel's ice cream you know all that all those days and um yeah, and then when I was 17, or when I was 16, I, I took my GED because I wasn't really enjoying school very much, but I started going to Ventura College. And um, then I, I, I started working at BST when I was 20. And oh wow, you got in on the ground floor then. Yeah, yeah. There was only there were eleven employees at the time, and um, and that was really wonderful. It just really changed my life to be with you know a really nice group of people doing some interesting work and a lot of opportunity to. Yeah, can you tell us grow. about that work? The base, yeah, I know the business model, but you can you can tell it. Yeah, oh sure. Yeah, so so basically the idea is um, if you think of uh, behavioral psychology and people like Skinner and, and stuff like that, instead of worrying about, well, what's, what's the person thinking about? What's their attitude? Um, trying to understand internal psychology, behavioral psychologists look at behavior. And they say, well, we're just going to look at a person and watch what they do and, and then try to influence things that way. So that was a big movement in industrial safety at the time, which is let's look at uh, unsafe behaviors. And if you think of uh, an iceberg model, which obviously is ubiquitous, but you would say everything that's above the, the waterline, those would be things like first, if you think of right at the waterline, you might say there are, you know, near misses, first aid cases, you know, then lost time work. And the tip of the iceberg would be a fatality, but underneath the water, 
those are all the unsafe behaviors that occur that occur that don't always manifest into an actual accident so it'd be like the another analogy would be if you think of how many times you speed on the freeway versus how many times you get a ticket so you speed you know a thousand times before getting a ticket right and so um what they started looking at is working with an organization and saying let's look at two years of accident reports boil them down into a kind of a generic behavior and a generic behavior would be something like um eyes on path or uh what's called line of fire <clears throat> so if you are let's say you're changing out a pipe on a line you have to decharge the line right so in other words you turn it off upstream like you lock it out turn it off then you would work on the line and you would not stand in the way if it does shoot or something like that so they would look at these kind of 15 to 25 generic behaviors that most sites have and then come up with an operational definition that anybody could observe so if you were saying let's say it's a shipping company and when you pick up a box you would say do you hold the load close um do you bend at the knees you know something you could observe yeah. and then then they would train employees to be observers and the observers would go out you know doing a 15 minute observation but if i was observing you i would i would say oh hey brett hey this is part of the safety process i i would show you the sheet i'm using i would say no names are used there's no discipline involved and i'm just going to watch you for 15 minutes or so while you work and then if you have a minute i'll give you some feedback so then i would watch you i'd be like looking at the area and i again according to these critical behaviors that the comp that the site came up with with bst and then i would give you feedback on what you did safely and then what concerns i had so you start tracking percent safe how many behaviors have been safe and there's a direct correlation between percent safe behavior going up and incidents going down so i'm sure long-winded way of saying it so then bst started working with all kinds of clients all around the country and then the consultants were safety professionals who would work with the companies and the company grew to hundreds of people um 60 in ohio but then all across the country and then around the world and um the work expanded to uh culture in general and then leadership development as well so um I stopped working there in 2008, and I believe, if I remember correctly, they sold it in 2014 um, to a company called Decra. Oh, really? I thought it was yeah. I thought it was much much earlier than that, but it might have been 2012. Um, yeah, something like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. That uh, just seemed like a busy, bustling place. There was a lot of travel involved with that, I would imagine, but maybe not yeah. for you. Were you? Well, home-based or well, did you travel as well i was home-based so i was there for 18 years but i was home-based um mostly in the beginning which was great you know to raise the kid my kids and stuff but then um i did spend two years consulting with clients so i was traveling about a week and a half or so a month for about two years but that was really fun i saw a lot of our country and canada and it was neat yeah that was a good time really cool yeah yeah so um then you went to and correct me if i'm wrong uh -huh. because i'm often wrong <laughs> to uh theater 150 deb and chris and that's right deb, um, deb uh yeah what happened yeah, there sorry, was i can't for, i can't remember their last names all it's uh, chris natalie and deb um deb norris i think is that right uh, yeah deb norton norton that's it deb norton um yeah what happened there was so what i was doing for bst was you know, graph, first graphic design, and then I became the marketing manager. And then I was 
doing all the helping with content creation and then communications with clients. And so when I stopped working there in 2008, um, I had a bunch of clients that I was doing design work for. And uh, work, especially for nonprofits, that's what I really enjoyed working, who I enjoyed working with. But then Tom Krauss, who I mentioned earlier, he asked me if I would be willing to help out at Theater 150 because um, he and a group of other donors were trying to keep the theater alive. And it's a, such a tough model because, um, as you know, every theater performance basically loses money pretty much. So yeah. then you say, well, the, the more work you do, the more money you lose. And so they were really trying to build a model at that time at Theater 150 that they wanted to use equity actors, right? So that really increases the cost a lot versus, let's say, the art center community theater production. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't save it. Um, I didn't realize how, how, what kind of shape it was in because I, I guess I thought, oh, you know, there's going to be some money there, but it turned out there wasn't any money and we had to go back to the donors every single month. Yeah. And that's I've had really hard. I've discussion with Chris, uh, uh -huh. like trying to, trying to get, trying to become a regional draw, something yes. more along right. the lines of like the Rubicon theater Yeah, and have yeah. staged those productions. Very ambitious. I was really rooting for him, but I can see that Ojai is just too small. There's not enough scale. And they, they wanted people that are expensive. Yeah. I saw the one that they did at the skate park or what's now the skate. Yeah, that was a, yeah, Winter's Tale. So they did this full Shakespeare Winter's Tale and some of the actors you could see on television shows and stuff like that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was incredible. It was beautiful, gorgeous. The, the work was great. And they had these, um, they would do solo performances and I would be in the room and I, I'd be in tears because it was so powerful and amazing. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is some of the best stuff I've ever seen in person. And we're having a hard time building a 90 seat theater, you know, and, and they just, they did want it to be a regional draw people coming from LA and, you know, up, up North, but we, we just had a hard time getting the reach out there. And so, um, but uh, anyway, you know, I ended up not staying there very long. Um, I think it was, November to April or something like that. I can't quite remember, but not even a year. And then, um, then what happened was that we did uh, a theater group with a bunch of uh, elementary, I mean, sorry, junior high students from Oak Grove. So I got to meet the teacher at Oak Grove and uh, I knew about Oak Grove from growing up here, but I had not been onto the campus. And they reached out to me asking, would I be interested in working there? And I interviewed and I really liked what I saw and and so I started working there in, um, let's see, uh, shoot, what year was it? 2011. Is that right? Yeah, something like that. Uh, but yeah, that's, that seems to match up with what I Yeah. So that, and what was your job title? Uh, the director of outreach for the school. So all the promotion of the school, um, like, the, you know, the website, all the marketing. And then I ended up teaching uh, graphic design in, the, in high school. And then when the admissions director left, Joy, who you know, um, then I also was working with admissions. And then I ended up also teaching philosophy and history of psychology in high school as well. But that was really, I loved being there. It was great. Um, but I'll bet. I, I get the sense at Oak Grove, as well as the other schools, <laughs> that it's a, it's a very small network. Everybody's got to look out for everybody else and cover their classes. And you got to do... 17 or 18 different that's things. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, that's, I 
I mean, especially things like uh, things that even don't even make sense that you're working on, but you just, you, you can do it and you help out and, and that's all really good. Um, but yeah, so then when, when Agora then became full time, that's, that's why I left the school. But, um, but you took I took who? You, t- you took somebody with you, didn't you? Didn't you meet uh, Kate? At oh, yeah. I was trying to say, uh, I didn't take any employees with me. Yes, Kate was <laughs> Kate was the chef at Oak Grove, right? And so we started dating um, after I after five years, though. I, I mean, five years, we were just working not even closely, but, you know, everybody knows everybody at the school. And then, yeah, we started going out and we got married about a year oh, ago. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know uh, she as well. She's the cutie. That's probably the first, but she can but, cook. Oh my goodness, can she cook? I've been, you know, the recipient <laughs> yeah. of many of her treasures, and I've, uh, yeah. just like uh, my girlfriend's a vegan. Yeah, and uh, crispy. Uh-huh. But she uh, um, that, with one of the spreads at one of the events. Uh, I was like, man, oh, her, yeah. it wasn't even meant to be for vegans. She had a little bit of everything out there. But, yeah. yeah. How come you don't weigh 340 pounds? I'm trying to figure that <laughs> out. That must be a challenge. Well, <laughs> no, actually, um, what's uh, well, let me just say, I, I have never met anybody that I have so much in common with. And part of it is we both love to cook. We both love to garden. We both love to hike. Um, and we love to travel. So all of those huge priorities. And also, I've never met anybody that was as kind and, and in a way, selfless as she is. And all of that just really was was really wonderful. But we um, we try to eat pretty healthy. And even during during the virus here, we, we, we went, um, I don't want to, maybe like three weeks where we just, she would make a batch of soup. Yeah, that's really good for you. And then we would just eat that for dinner every day. And boy, we, we felt great. So we're just about to start doing that again. Um, but yeah, no, we try to eat pretty well. And you also mentioned that you were during the pandemic doing pickling and uh, right. some of these other craft type food projects. And that's been so much fun too. In fact, right now I have um, orange vinegar that's almost ready. Um, oh. Another batch of mead that's fermenting right now. And then some pickled jalapenos, fermented jalapenos. And then I've been making also um, different kinds of moonshine right now. So I have uh, you have a co- corn. still? Yeah, I have a still. That's in the in the backyard. And uh, it can be disassembled and reassembled, so it's not a big deal. But um, I have corn and oats that are almost ready. And then I'll, I'll get the wash out of that, you know, take all the solids out. And then end up um, getting, you know, a bunch of mason jars full of this stuff and the stuff i don't know if you know but basically it comes in um the first part you have to throw out because it's methanol yeah, yeah you can't drink that alcohol exactly right you go blind that's right but then what happens is it's called heads hearts and tails and so the heads are pretty good but the hearts that's the heart of it that's the stuff that's the good stuff. And then the tails, it starts to, the alcohol level starts to really drop and you're really sort of making water, making distilled water at that point um, with a little bit of uh, like an oil that's on top. So you're shooting for the hearts and uh, you're just kind of watching the whole thing and testing it a little bit here and there um, to see what you're getting. But it's been really fun to learn all this stuff. And, you know, some of the batches didn't turn out right. And 
some of the fermented stuff to get moldy in a way you don't want. But um, it's it's really it's a lot of fun to do it. Yeah, I know uh, Peter DeCapua, who uh, his uh, Heidi, his wife was you know that's her family, the old family. Okay, but Peter would make like vincellos uh, was his thing. Oh yeah, know, add, adding the flavors. But yeah, yep. he made uh, pixie tangerine, pixie tangerine um, limoncello. Uh, cool. I get a, you know, like five or six, a small bottle every year. I just treasured it. It was just so good. Oh, put yeah. it in the freezer and have a little shot after dinner. It's just delicious. Yeah. So yeah, whatever I need to do to get on your list, uh, let me know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I gave um, Cherie, at, at, who though leaving president of Rotary, I gave her a bottle of uh, persimmon wine that's still not ready. But then I gave her some uh, pear vinegar, uh, I think uh, squash vinegar and celery vinegar. Oh, that's awesome. It was fun, yeah, yeah. I'll bring you some. I have still all that stuff left, so next time I see you, I'll bring something by. Yeah. So um, the other thing I was going to ask you about is some of the events, the partnerships that you would do, and I'm trying to trying to think of exactly how you set it up. But mm -hmm. it was a performance at the art center, mm -hmm. and then you would have uh, like a discussion beforehand, yeah. right. see the play, and then meet it azu or whatever afterwards to have a cocktail and sort of. talk about it yeah well it yeah. Would be, the order would be more typically um we would have um continental breakfast at azu in the back room and we'd set up and you know liz at azu where i really really like her and jeremy and um so i love being there and having our events there and um and she gives me a great deal too so we would have a two-hour seminar in the back and it would be something like um we would read a play so we would have you know have a seminar a great book seminar for two hours and then um we would come up with a lunch that if we can make it be themed that's what we would do so for example when the art center had man of la mancha we read the first half of don quixote and you know had a seminar on that and then liz made a bunch of spanish food uh, for us, um, that we then had had our lunch there, but then at Pointe Chen, uh, Bob, you know the wine store that's on yeah, Signal, Bob uh, yeah, Bob Huey, um, Liz would let me bring in my own wine to keep the cost down, and so I would work with Bob on some Spanish wines or whatever, if it's French or whatever it is, like if it's Moliere, it would be French, and so Bob would come, I'd feed him, and then he would do uh, kind of a wine tasting with everybody, so everybody's having a great time, it's just awesome, and then we would yeah. go to the art center, watch the show, and then, you know, like Marty and people like that, the actors, they would come out and give us a, a talk back after, so it was just like an incredible day. Um, I can't wait till we could do that again. <laughs> Those are some yeah, of my favorites. Me too. Uh, that's just uh, such a, one of the best things about Ojai is those those partnerships and people working together to come up yeah. with these really novel experiences. Yeah, yeah. And uh, all of our new residents here in Ojai, hopefully, will get back to that. And yes. Can, yeah, yeah. Experience all that. So, um, what's what's you know, how do you see the organization, the Agora Foundation, um, you know, over the next five, 10 years? Like, what, what would you, what do you hope for it? 
No, that you're you're asking exactly what we're asking ourselves. So we we uh, actually during the during this virus, um, we have we've always, we're always writing grants, but we had reached out to the Amundsen Foundation, which has given us grants in the past. And I, once this all happened, the virus, I went back to them and asked, can I revise this grant proposal that you are considering? They went to their board, the board agreed, because we were basically saying, you know, the, the grant was for LA County teachers, which that's Amundsen's purview, um, LA County teachers getting subscriptions to come to Ojai for events or for us to go down there and train their teachers. Well, neither one of those things are going to be happening right now. So then we asked, can we buy 200 subscriptions, online subscriptions for LA County teachers? And um, Amundsen came back and gave us the biggest grant of our history. That just nice. happened in August. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that um, changes the organization when you get a big grant. Huh? Like, it like, does. Whoa, all of a sudden, uh, we're, we're serious. But you also yeah. have like uh, accountability and uh, things oh, of yeah, that of course. nature. Yeah. No, and we, you know, again, we we're always writing grants and you know not getting many of them, but getting some here and there. And then we have you know a group of donors. But um, anyway, so what we think is that we're poised now, really because of the sort of lockdown and and the virus, that we can now become more national in the sense of of our reach. So that's what we're doing is um, I'm reaching out much farther in marketing to get people to see Agora and to come to our events, but then um, growing the organization with personnel. So I'm still spending a lot of time on just like marketing and, and small things. So this month, actually, we hired a part-time person to take some of that work on. But the, the vision at some point would be that I'm not, I'm not, just working directly writing the grants or working with a grant writer i'm i would be more like approving grants you know after i read them but we're we're designing curriculum um that would be so the leadership now is spending much more time leading instead of pr producing the organization so i would love it if um you know you have instead of having a seminar on a saturday or a seminar on a sunday you might have 10 seminars going on and they're all happening in sort of different rooms you might say nationally besides whatever else we are doing here on site but uh, we have other visions too like you mentioned the chautauqua packets so we thought about building a knowledge base for ojai that would include data like the kind you see in that packets you know water water use level population income housing etc and be working with those agencies that provide that so that you could go to a single source to say i want to try to understand um I want I, I want to have an informed opinion about fill in the blank, right? If that's you know tourism or or water for Ojai, so that's our other vision too is um, having really having very very informed conversations um, so that we have a citizenry that really can do some incredible things. Uh, yeah, a common well of knowledge. Yeah. Empathize and continue with you know foundations of our republic or Eastern classics and all of the seminars we we. Before the virus, we were drafting a document that where there was four pillars of the community uh, for community building. The seminars are one because it really builds a way of thinking that's that's pretty rigorous. But the second is you have informed panels; those are the Chautauquas. But a third would be 
a knowledge base, uh, as I just mentioned, so that you can have these really informed uh, opinions. But then we think that there are very strategic ways to improve education in OHI. And so working with OUSD and places like that, we, we think we could get the funding to pay for tutors where a high school student can come at no cost um, and get get help on any subject that they need. Because if you look at some of the education stuff, you'll see there's the low hanging fruit might be um, English language learners in terms of you know, like test scores and funding and where we think getting we can those help. Up. Yeah, getting those up. Have the most and so, of leverage. Exactly. So once it, you know when things get back to normal that's something that we would like to pick up again and our office on bryant circle imagine the bottom floor is you know a bunch of desks with a bunch of bilingual teachers ready to help out students <laughs> so we think we could we could become uh something where we really partner with ousd and other places to say how can we how can we help because we have people that have money that want to help but they might not know how or how to make the biggest impact and we think we could help with that yeah, wow, that sounds great. Now, I wonder when we get back to being able to get in person, up close and personal, how, how is it, like, are you going to continue with these virtual events? Obviously, Absolutely. you get geographic participation that you can't in person. That's right. Um, no, we will definitely continue them and continue them even at the same level. So right now we're doing four seminars a week, as I mentioned. I, I don't see that. I see that just increasing. And but then, you know, once we're in person again, we also have in-person events. And so obviously that's going to require more staffing, but I think we'll be able to manage that. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, it seems Me like we're... I guess uh, just stumbling in the dark, and I think your yeah. Agora Foundation provides a bit of light. I know um, I don't remember what it was in the Peloponnesian War, but those things stick with you. I probably read that <laughs> when I was like fourteen years old. Uh, uh -huh. The, the Malian dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, just like I just so wrapped up in you know Athens and Sparta and these poor little islands caught in the middle and how how's that gonna turn out? But you know the 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 thing that everybody brings out of that is like uh, you know those with power do what they will, those without do what they must. That's but, it. But the con but the with the you know the way that that played out and how caught in the vice those people must have felt and uh, yeah it just it well just a, this is all time. yeah yeah exactly right um <laughs> exactly so when you read it now it's as if this is going on right now and you could say the people who really suffer in war are the ones that really have nothing to do with the political side they might not even understand what the war is about but they're the ones who are, are truly suffering um and so like you just said you could say well justice is might makes right like that's the example you just brought up but then you can realize oh you're you're really wanting a different kind of a justice that that the greeks will develop but they they ha didn't have it quite yet and maybe they didn't fully live up to it but we're looking for something we don't want to say might makes right i mean maybe if america does that occasionally but in general you want to have a principle of justice somehow that means there's a kind of a fairness to it everybody's getting what they need out of it it's it's 
a good compromise for the sides. Um, and you think even in your own dealings, like business or otherwise, you say, if the other person's not having a good arrangement with you, it's just not going to last. Even if it lasts for a little while, it will end. And so everybody's got to get something out of their relationships and yeah, their contracts. So, uh, it's different when you do business long-term with people. It's not like you're just going in there to get what you can and get out. Yeah. You're just pure right. dominating them. You have to. Yeah. It's a, a model for for that kind of behavior. People, uh, they about business as being this one thing or another. Yeah. But when you're in business, you have an accountability to a lot of people. And yeah. you really learn that give and take. It isn't all or nothing. It's all, it's. You know, there's got to be, nobody always gets, nobody gets what they want all the time. There's got to be, no. you know, and you try yeah. to build uh, relationships that are, that are sustainable and long-term yeah. and you've got to think in those long-term ways. So, yeah. you know, living in a small town and having this sort of uh, symposia and having these discussions and, and that's, uh, you know, it's like about the pillars that's definitely definitely a key part of it yeah so yeah, thank you for for doing that oh it yeah sure adds a lot of value to the community experience and i hope yeah everyone uh, especially our new residents are able to take advantage of that soon and that yeah. you're uh, doing well with this this virtual you made the pivot successfully i feel thank and, you yeah so uh, first yeah, so congratulations Think. And I, I would say the same for you, that the, the work that you do really unites the community um, with, with the magazine, especially the quarterly, but also the monthly. And I'm appreciative of it. Oh, thanks, Andy. Yeah. Yeah, it's good uh, doing. Super. All right, anything else? Are we good? Is there anything you can think of? No, I don't think so. I think we covered it. And um yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how things work out, and I'm trying also to get uh, a grant for Ohio Unified School teachers. Anybody who wants, you know, to come to these events for free to have a subscription. So I think that funding should come through soon as well. Um, yeah, for anybody who's interested. So yeah, teachers teaching teachers and exactly those back and forth, and yeah, yeah that's funny. gonna that's gonna really benefit the the students when when they're able to bring these. The rigorous yeah. uh, back and forth into the classroom yeah. and give the kids yeah. a little chance to sharpen their their skills, which yeah. critical thinking is going to be valuable at every stage of their life. Yes, thanks. So, um, yeah, thanks, Andy. Uh, you take okay, care, cool. and we'll hopefully you see you around the campus before too long. I hope so. Thanks. Have a good right. day. You too. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Just thinking out loud, Andy's references to the Lincoln-Douglas debates got me thinking about a book I read recently. Though it came out several years ago, its relevance is timeless, especially in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests. The book is called The Fiery Trial, and the author is Eric Foner. It takes a thorough look at Abraham Lincoln's changing views on slavery over several decades. Though always a firm opponent to slavery, mostly because free labor versus slavery was a huge, huge issue in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. But Lincoln didn't think that black people, because of their 
state of former servitude could ever fully integrate into the American experience. As late as 1862, he was supporting various colonization schemes. It was a gradual shift, one that moved in concord with the furious pace of events during the Civil War and the fraught decades that preceded it. But he came around mostly through the moral suasion of people like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. But once moved to a, a new position, Lincoln said, he was never moved away from it. It reminds me of that old quote, the time to give up on people is never. That's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.